Awesome. As Tan said, we're, uh, we're up to chapter six. Like the previous five chapters, chapter six is fantastic. Now, it's really huge. So over the next two hours, we're get- no, that's not true. It is really big and it goes through a, a, a bunch of things. It starts with Jesus heading back to his hometown of Nazareth. He then sends out his 12s on a bit of a missions trip. But he bizarrely, and we'll get to this, when you first read it, it's kind of a bit strange. He, he sends them out and then he interrupts with telling a bit of a backstory about how John the Baptist gets beheaded. And then he comes back and continues talking about the journey that he sends the disciples on. And then he feeds 5,000 after they get back. And then he also meets them on the water out in the middle, uh, in the middle of a, a rough storm. And so it's, it's, a, it's a quite a massive block and we're not actually going to read the whole thing. We're going to skip a, a slab in the middle. But I'd really encourage you this coming week, if you haven't already read Mark 6, to read it again. The best way you're going to get stuff out of it is uh, not just the time we share this morning, but to actually read and pray and digest it in your own time as well. There's so much more than we're going to unpack. And as we've said time and time again, and we'll keep saying, Mark doesn't w- go very slowly. He keeps moving. He's, he's always very intentional and, and moving very fast. So to, uh, to get the best out of it, I'd really encourage you to, uh, to keep, keep reading it in your own time as well. So we're going to start at the start of uh, Mark 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. Now, we all know that his hometown was Nazareth, but what I didn't realize before this last week is how insignificant Nazareth was. I looked up and, and archaeologists kind of uh, have worked out that it was a rocky side of a mountain that was about 60 acres and 500 people. So I, I didn't know what 60 acres was, but it's actually not much more than this Mar- Maranatha property. So we're not talking about a big space. And when you look at in John 1, 46, Philip tells his mate Nathaniel, there's this guy Jesus from Nazareth, and, and Nathaniel's response is, Nazareth, what good can come out of Nazareth? So we're talking about a place, you know, Nanagoon, Nyora. Um, <laughs> I don't know, I'm sure you've got one in your mind of a, of a place that's in the back box. Seriously, what's, what's going to come out of that place? It's, it's nowhere, it's the middle of nowhere. And it's insignificant. And so Jesus has returned to this middle of nowhere place. When the synagogue, uh, so when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. Now remember, this was his hometown. So something must have happened since the last time he was there. Um, what's the wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Now there's actually nothing carpenters aren't a lowly role, they're a normal role, but they're just normal. They're like the rest of us. Isn't this just a guy like us? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Saying that he was Mary's son was actually a little offensive already. You call someone by their father's name, not by their mother's name. And, and it's offensive possibly in one of two ways. One, it's just, it's just naming him because... Uh, by his mother's name, potentially because dad's dead, but other, maybe he's an illegitimate child. That could be another offensive thing that we're calling him by his mum's name. There's a provocation in there as well in this offence. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around, teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him 
he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not extra shirt. Now, interestingly, this is very similar to what the Jewish people were called to do leaving Exodus. It's the same outfit, a belt, uh, clothes, sandals, keep it simple, you're on the move, you're uh, on a mission here, travel light. Now, another thing that's significant is that he's not here trying to, um, to make them be in a position of sacrifice. A lot of rabbis might have sent their people out to, to do errands or to, to be on a mission and, and say, how, how loyal are you? How about you go without sandals? How about you do this? Jesus isn't doing that. He's saying, I want you to be comfortable. I want you to be prepared, but you, you need to travel light. It's important to know that he's not actually trying to torture them. He just wants them to travel light. When you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. That's just a polite thing to do. If you don't move from house to house, respect the house that you stay in. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, again, that line is weird to us. We don't know what that's about. But in their culture, when you would go to foreign land, before you come back to your land, you shake your clothes off to get the dust off. It's not an offensive thing. It's, it's kind of like we, we were just recently up in Mildura. And when you head into Mildura, you've got to get rid of your fruit from, uh, from the rest of the place because there might be fruit flies in the fruit. So this wasn't, this wasn't offensive. This was just a way of saying, we're in a different place here. You and, I, you and I, we disagree. We've got some things that are between us. It's not to offend the person that they're leaving the house from. It's just to say, we have something that separated us. We are in a different... We're, you're from a foreign land, as it were. I'm going to shake the sand off because... The dust off because we're from, a foreign, we're from foreign places. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, this next slab, he starts talking about how Herod is a bit concerned because he thinks John the Baptist has come back from the dead. And I'm not going to read this next slab, but as you read it this week, there's a couple of really important things to remember. Firstly, it's very easy to get confused with Herod. There's actually four Herods in the New Testament. There's Herod the Great, who is the one that killed all the, all the babies and tried to convince the, um, the wise men to come back and report on where Jesus was because he didn't want a threat to his, his throne. Then his son, who's this guy, is Herod Antipas, and he had heard John the Baptist and respected him and saw him as a holy and righteous man, but he'd married what was essentially, if you look at the family tree, his niece. Here it talks about his brother's wife, but Herod the Great had a number of wives and had a number of kids. So it works out that he's taken his brother's wife and married her, who's his niece. And John the Baptist said that wasn't right. So his wife wanted him dead and in the end did that. Another thing as you read it that's really fascinating because this gets inserted in just after the disciples had been sent out. They've just been sent out and all of a sudden he throws this backstory in and you go, why would he throw this backstory in? It's deliberately there and it's deliberately in his place. And another thing he does is he goes into so much detail. Mark's not a details person. Why does he go into so much detail here? As you read it in your own time, have a look at this story and Jesus' death. There's only two stories that Mark tells that aren't directly of Jesus, and that's of John the Baptist starting and this story here. And this story is a precursor to what's happening to Jesus. 
a guy that's righteous and holy, that's standing up for the truth, that someone hated him and wanted him killed and convinced the authorities to kill him. So this story looks out of context, but it's actually very deliberate. It's a very important story, and I encourage you to read it. We're going to slip over it, but please take the time to read it later. So we're going to start again at verse 30. So obviously we, we got the disciples heading out, and they're now coming back. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked them, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the grass So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Again, this is a really weird part for us. But to Jewish people, the idea of walking on water can only be done by one. In the Old Testament, there's only one way you can walk on water, and that's if you're God. So there's an understanding in the writing of this that if you're walking on water, there's something significant going on. There's a a representation of God in this place. The other thing is, if you look back at at your your Old Testament knowledge of times, that God walked by someone rather than to them. You've got Moses at the burning bush. Elijah had an experience. There's a number of experiences where where God walked by. So there's, there's references here that we don't normally get. But in their culture and in their circumstances, there's some clues here as to who it is that's walking on the water. And they're very significant clues as to, as to who this Jesus is walking on this water. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. You heard that reference before, it is I? It's another reference to God saying, I am, I am. Don't be afraid. 
Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And we're going to stop there. There's so much in this and yet there's, there's something that's a theme that carries through this. And it's a theme that we haven't actually yet seen in Mark. Um, we've seen glimpses of it, but it comes to light. And, and it's very timely this week when you've got two young guys that have decided to, to call themselves disciples, decided to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to set my life apart from the world and from my own ways and say, I want to follow you, Jesus, and do things your way. And in this chapter, we start to see something that, that there's, there's been opposition before, but right here, there is direct opposition to following Jesus. There is clear and direct opposition to following Jesus. And his disciples, even going to Nazareth, the, the 12 went with him. And even in that space, they could see that there was this, there's this tension. And as you think about the encouragement and, and the love and the support you want to show those that, that have chosen to follow Christ, you start by going, it's awesome. It's amazing. It's a great decision. It's a really good thing to do. And, and life will never be the same. And it's fantastic. And yet sometimes we actually forget or sometimes we, we sugarcoat things and, and actually don't present the whole picture. And it's like a lot of good things. It's like having kids. It's like being married. They're, they're not easy things to do and they will have opposition and there will be challenges. And in this passage, we get a theme that carries all the way through this and that is there is opposition to the spread of the gospel. There is a cost to following Jesus. And in that first passage, we see a really clear challenge and we've all experienced it. And that's, that's the, the tension between the familiar and following Jesus. We've all had conversations and we've all wrestled with things going, well, this is my experience. This is what I've had. And yet I read something different. It was funny that I've got family here today because they know, they know my story. They know my history. They know all the things that they could tell more stories than I could probably uh, about th things in my life that weren't right ways that, uh, that I could be pulled down and, and humbled and, and corrected. There's plenty of things that we all know about, about each other, but because we're familiar with each other. And when Jesus goes back to his hometown, he's confronted with the reality of who is this guy? He doesn't have a rabbi that he's a student of. So who's taught him this stuff? The things that they were familiar with, the things that they knew from their framework created this massive barrier to them accepting him. We know his family. We, we, know, we know this environment that he grew up in. Now, they didn't deny his, his miracles. Did you notice that? They didn't say these th things can't be true. They said, where did he get this wisdom from? They didn't say he didn't have any wisdom. They didn't know where it came from. And the amazing thing is they could see the miracles. They could see the wisdom, the truth, and the power and authority that he had. They weren't denying those things and that they couldn't acknowledge the real reason that they were there. We look on and you look at them being sent out. Now, those of you who've been following Mark up till this point, you'll know that the disciples weren't always the best disciples. They interrupt him when he's trying to go away and pray. They question him when he tells them what to do. They're a bit confused. They're not quite sure. They don't understand his parables. These aren't guys that have got their game together. And yet he still chooses to send them out. And he chooses to send them out, not with massive resources, but says, go simply. Go light, travel light. 
And so they go out what would look like being very underprepared. And again, as followers of Jesus, I don't know, any, does anyone feel like they've got it all together? Does anyone think that what God's called me to, I've, I've, I've got the full package, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the real deal. You kind of, there's this sense of following Jesus being, why is, why is he making me do this? I'm not yet ready. I'm not prepared. I don't have the resources. I don't have the right pair of shoes or sandals. You know, there's this concept that he's sending us out before we're even ready. There's the sense of being ignored and rejected. When you go to a town, he was preempting the fact that they might be rejected or might be ignored in those places. The part that we, we didn't read was a massive red light as to the cost of following Jesus. And the reason it sat in the middle of sending the disciples and them returning, because that sits as the massive red light of what following Jesus might look like. The forerunner that said Jesus is coming is now dead because of what he stood for. Sending out your disciples into the lion's den. This is the potential end game for these people. This is the potential risk of what following Jesus looks like. Acknowledging that he's a good righteous man and a holy man, and yet he's still getting beheaded because of what he stands for. And then they come back from that, and I can imagine them, them being all excited, going, wow, we had no idea that we were capable of doing these things. They told him all the stories, and you can imagine like little kids coming from a, back from a birthday party going, we did this, and we did this, and it was amazing, and it was awesome. And you get this imagination of them going, wow, who would have thought we could do this stuff? We didn't think we were ready for it, but you saw something in us that we didn't even see. And he says to them, you guys need a break. You need some rest. Let's go take, some, take a break. But they don't get a break. His heart for compassion for these people that have run around the side and met them on the other side overrides the fact that he told them to take a break. And not only does, do they not get a break, they have to work feeding 5,000 people for a day, first of all with a request that they couldn't fulfill, and then when he miraculously provides, they still have to work hard for the whole day, distributing everything. And like, this is a tough gig. This is a hard day's work. They've just gone around feeding 5,000 people and then had to collect it all up. I imagine at the end of that day, they were pretty flat. They've just gone out on a mission trip. They've come back and they've just busted their guts for another day. And it's really interesting when you see Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, you didn't get a chance to rest, so now's a really good time to rest. He actually kicks them out. The wording he uses there is really quite interesting. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him while he dismissed the crowds. So he didn't even get them to help dismiss the crowds. He goes, this, this is not the right place for you now. Get out of here. Jump on the boat. You're going. And the, the Greek word there is quite forceful. He's, he's quite forceful in his intention to say, you guys have got to go. But you can see this tension between the compassion and the need for rest. And again, as disciples, we wrestle with that. You know, I need downtime and yet there's so many needs and there's, there's things that I feel God's laid on my heart. And yet there's this tension in this place of following Jesus. And then lastly, we get to this place where they're completely confused, frustrated and their hearts are hardened. When we think about our own lives, 
we look at these places as a place of weakness. We look at these places of frustration or confusion or wrestling with, with how to invest our time. or We look at all those things as weakness. We're very, very tuned culturally to, to seek comfort, to seek happiness, to seek a place that everything is settled and under control. We're really eager to find that place where we don't have to wrestle with this stuff. And yet, consistently in this passage, Jesus is not afraid of his disciples experiencing these things. He's not trying to protect them from these experiences. He's not trying to corral them away so that, so that they're protected and safe and they're not challenged and they're not wrestled. By the fact that we see in other places that he, that he saw people's hearts, we can assume that he sees their hearts too. He knows where they're at. And yet, He's not afraid of them experiencing these things. And yet we are so afraid of experiencing things that are adverse. Confusion. We look at Thomas and we we label him as Doubting Thomas because we go, he's a bit of a loser. He doubted that Jesus raised from the dead. We look at him as as, as that being a problem, that our doubt, that I wrestle, that our struggles to, to be disciples is something of weakness or of failure. And yet Jesus here doesn't have that attitude. He's happy for them to wrestle with this. Happy is probably the wrong word. He's prepared for them to wrestle with this because it's part of being a disciple. It's actually part of following him. And I'd hate for Brad and Daniel to think that because they got baptized today, from now on, Jesus provides them with a blissful life. Because that's not the life that Jesus has for them as his followers. Yes, there are going to be times that that they're going to be frustrated. Yes, there's going to be times that they're confused. Yes, there's going to be times that they do not understand what God is asking them to do. And I'm not saying those things are easy, but I am saying that Jesus doesn't protect his followers from those experiences. Interestingly, that's not where Jesus leaves them, though. He actually, in that place of confusion and frustration, and disillusionment and hardened hearts, he actually does some really significant things. And again, it would be unfair to say to to someone that was just choosing to follow Jesus that it's all just hard work because that's not where Jesus leaves them. First of all, when he sent them out, he gave them his authority. He gave them his authority. That's not insignificant. And we sometimes see that as just something written on a piece of paper. But as a follower of Jesus, to have his authority is something that is very significant. And we we actually struggle with this, I think. I think, and I know for myself, I really struggle with this gap of understanding. I think if I I understand and if I know, and I, I can then make a good decision. And yet we can clearly see that his disciples didn't know, but he did. And they obeyed out of a place of trust, not out of a place of being convinced that it was the right thing. There was a number of things they did. We got five loaves of bread and two fish. Are you crazy? This just does not add up. Okay, start distributing it. Can you imagine being asked to do that? And there's this point at which, and I've realized over the last few years, where I I actually realized that I've taken the place of God. I'm not going to do it unless I understand Unless I can solve it, unless I can, can put it all into a nice package that I go, this is the right answer, then I'm not going to do it. 
And yet time and time again, and you can see that tension with his family and with those in his town, they went, we can't see how this adds up. We can't see how you being a miracle working person adds up with our understanding, so we're going to reject you. And often in our walk with Jesus, I think we do the same. We go, I read it, I can see that you've said it, but until I can solve it for myself, then I'm not going to obey. And the problem with that is it means that there's no faith, there's no trust. It's our own capacity to understand is what we're leaning on, not being obedient as followers. And again, Jesus is happy for them to wrestle with this. That's okay. They can wrestle with that. Secondly, he sends them out. I think this is probably, I don't, McDonald's didn't invent it. Jesus invented, invented the franchise. Um, he's, um, he's happy to release them to ministry. He believes in them more than they do. Um, again, when we look at our own lives, we question our ability and capacity to do what God said to do. We question what it is, and he does not question that. He says, the things I've equipped you with are enough. You need to know that I'm capable of equipping you and you need to be obedient and trust me in that. But that is enough. And he sent them out with enough. We would have said these are crazy choices. In human logic, what Jesus has chosen to do is ridiculous. It does not make sense. And yet it's something that Jesus has the authority to do. And he was right. And he has enough love to challenge their weaknesses. He has enough love to actually challenge the things that they're weak in. He also really encourages them to rest. It's another area as Jesus followers we struggle with. The idea of actually having quality rest. I'm not talking about sitting down watching TV of an evening. You look at the times that Jesus has rest. It's time that's set out to pray away from the noise, away from the crowd, away from the distractions. Quality time. To rest. Time that's not just pressing the pause button, but time that's sowing in. And Jesus modeled that so well. He often took time out to rest. But the three things I want to focus on are the three things he does at the end of this passage. Because he's obviously put them through a lot. We've, we've read a lot of things that he's put them through. And he does three really significant things at the end of that. The first one is he talks to them from the water. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. And it's really important to recognize God's word. And that's his word. And he continually says that to trust him. Do not be afraid. There is, there is no need to fear in this circumstance. Now, remember, these are tired, worn out people who are at their wits end, who have been battling the oars, trying to get across the lake in a storm. They're tired. It's the middle of the night. They're not achieving anything. They see Jesus on the water and like, this is full on. They're freaked out. And he says to them, it's me. Do not be afraid. Don't let that just wander by as a nice little phrase. Because I believe Jesus says that to each of us. Do not be afraid. I am. I am. Do not be afraid. But then he does something even more amazing. And this is the crazy God that we worship and we serve that doesn't think the way we think. 
because he gets in the boat with them. He gets in the boat with them. A God that can walk on water, a God that has a power to do miracles, has chosen to be in the boat with them. That's a conscious choice of his. He's not distant. He's not off doing his own thing and occasionally pops in and says hello. He's in the boat with these guys in their moment of turmoil, in their moment of distress, in their moment of weakness. And to Brad and Daniel, they need to know and we need to be reminded that this is a God that is not distant. This is a God that the reason he came to earth, the reason he came to earth was to be with his people, to, be, to dwell amongst them. And yet again, he's reminding them where, as he gets in the boat with them. And the third thing he does is he calms the storm. And these three things, in the turmoil, in the frustration, in the, in the stress that sometimes following Jesus is, these three things are very, very significant to us. As we, as we choose to follow, as we choose to commit our lives, as we choose to make decisions each day to serve, these three things, the word that God says, his truth, do not be afraid. The fact that he is in the boat with them and the fact that what he offers, the power, the, the authority, the direction, the purpose can calm the storm. Now, I'm sure they would have loved him to come uh, other storms. They, they would have loved him to come it at the start of the night. That would have been much easier for them, much less stressful. So he didn't get rid of the storm altogether. And again, I, I, I mentioned that we sometimes look for the blissful answer, but that's not where Jesus looks for the answer. They endured and they pushed through and, and the conclusion was he calmed the storm. He gave them a place of peace in their turmoil. It wasn't over for them and there's plenty more things that they're going to wrestle with as they journey with him. But I think today for us, it's important to understand what it is that we represent as disciples. It's important to understand what it is that it means to be a disciple. That we don't flee from pressure. We don't flee from the challenges that are before us. We don't see them as, as failure, as being a bad disciple, they're actually part of growth. They're actually part of maturity. They're actually part of wrestling with what it is to follow Jesus. And as we, as we journey together, as we stand beside each other, we have opportunities to, to stand and encourage and support in those places, not just say, get over it. Why are you thinking that way? Why are you confused? That's, that's weakness. Come on, you should do better than that. There's actually space for us, as for Jesus' disciples in this case, to, be, to, to wrestle with these things, to not see them as failure, but to see them as opportunities for God to do amazing things. And we know the end game. We can look at these guys and say, they were silly people. And it's, it's easy to do, go, oh, they were just so ignorant and they didn't understand. We're not that different we can see the end of their journey and what, what Jesus did at the end and the power and the authority that they went out and spread the gospel with. And yet sometimes that's very distant from where we see ourselves. Do you see yourself as a disciple that has what you need to do what God's called you to? Or do you see yourself as someone that's not yet ready? Maybe tomorrow, 
maybe tomorrow? Do you see yourself as someone that has Jesus beside you in the boat? Do you see his words as something that's truth? These are all things that are foundational to being followers of Jesus that I think he wants to keep reminding us. And as we multiply, as we, as we baptize people, this is part of what being a Jesus follower is. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you are a God that is not distant. Lord, I thank you today as we've heard from Brad and Daniel that you're a God that eagerly desires to be close. You eagerly desire to transform lives, to experience you, to know you, to walk in your truth and the equipping and enabling of your spirit. Father, we confess that so often we get confused. So often we, we question your instructions, your purposes, your plans. Lord, so often we take back control and think we have a better way. Well, Lord, we thank you so much that in Mark 6 we read of the wrestle, the challenge, and even the persecution that following you has. Lord, we're not foreign to those things. And Father, we pray that in amongst that, we'll hear your voice. We'll hear your truth. We'll understand your calling out to us and saying, do not fear. Lord, we pray that you would help us experience the closeness of your spirit as you journey in the boat with us. And Father, I pray you would help us believe. Help us believe that you are a God that is the Almighty, that you have the power and authority over all things. And you do work together for good for those that love you. Lord, we want to be people that trust you, whether we understand or not. We want to be people that are obedient to you, whether we see the big picture or, or only see in part. Lord, we want to be people that are your disciples and are obedient as your disciples and serve as your disciples. Lord, for, for Brad and for Daniel, Lord, we want them to have the best opportunity Lord, we don't want to sugarcoat what it means to be a disciple, but we also want them to know, Lord, that you walk so closely with them. Father, we pray that you would continue to reveal your word and your presence in our lives as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.